0: الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى اله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا وبعد we talk we move now to talking about the um, the scribes and correspondents we mentioned uh, <clears throat> before that the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam had people who take care of things that belonged to him can stand that on scene So, scribes and correspondents. We said that the Prophet ﷺ had people who actually looked after his things. And uh, one of the things that were really, really interesting, uh, that the Prophet ﷺ had a chair. This is something that's not commonly known, that the Prophet ﷺ had a chair, even though he ﷺ would not sit on a chair all the time. Because that was not their tradition, but he had it. Cheers, Allah subhanahu wa taala. An Aliyin radhiyallahu an Aliyin narrated that he entered. فَإِذَا بِجَرُوٍ لِلْحَسَنِ تَحْتَ كُرْسِيٍّ لَنَا. The Hassan radhiyallahu taala an had a jarw. You know what a jaru is? It's a puppy. Said the Hassan had a puppy. That the Hassan radhiyallahu taala an had a puppy that was under the kursi, under the chair of the Prophet sallallahu وَأَتَى It's also narrated أَنَّ رجلا أتى إليه ليسأله. Like that a man came to ask the Prophet Like that a chair the قوائم, the legs of it are made of steel was brought to the Prophet ﷺ فَقَعَدَ عليه He sat, And this hadith is uh, a and, and similar hadith narrated in al uh, Bukhari the benefit of this why do we mention this that the professor has the chair <clears throat> because it gives uh, substantiated evidence to uh, the importance of making sure that the teacher sits on something higher than the students uh, and also a person with authority uh, whether it's a knowledge related to knowledge or anything like that should sit on something so that he is recognized. So that he is recognized. If you're sitting with like three or four people or twenty people and you are amongst them, the Prophet ﷺ generally he wouldn't love to be distinguished from the people sitting around him. That's his tawadu, his humility. His humility was displayed in there. But sometimes it is important for the teacher to be distinguished from the students because strangers would know. If a stranger comes in and there is a circle of people, 20 people, 30 people, and he doesn't know who is the teacher, then he might uh, disrespect the teacher, or he might not realize uh, how to speak to him. So when he comes and he sees that the teacher is sitting, then he knows who is the teacher and who are the students. But that should should not be the case all the time. When, when there is no halaqa of teaching, then... Person sits with uh, with uh, with 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 others. Uh, <coughs> the Prophet sallallahu had what we call kuttab, people who used to to write for him. And Al Hafiz Al Iraqi, rahimahullah, great scholar of hadith, who wrote a uh, an a uh, thousand thousand lines poem in the seerah of the Prophet sallam in the biography. He mentioned 42 of them. Zayd ibn Thabit, Amr ibn Fuhaira, al mugira ibn Shu'ba, Obay ibn Kaab, Sayyidina Ali ibn Abi Talib ta'ala an, Al-Alai ibn al-Hadrami, Thabit ibn Qais, Shurahbil ibn Hassana, Khalid ibn Sa'id al-Aasi, and Muhammad ibn Maslama. These were people who would write for the Prophet ﷺ. So why such a big number of people? Why didn't he have like one or two? Remember that he needed people to respond to different communications. Sometimes one would, write, would be specialized in writing questions and answers. When people ask questions. Some of them would be writing uh, revelation. Whenever he received the revelation, he would summon Zaid ibn Thabit and he would ask him to write down. Zaid was the one who used to be available to the Prophet وسلم, most of the time. Because he was his neighbor. He was the neighbor of the Prophet. In fact, there is something in the Muslim tradition called Diwanul in the governmental correspondence. You know nowadays when you write to a any government organization, there is like a specific formula. They respond to you. Like if you write if you receive a letter, you can when you get your post, you can easily recognize, even before you open the letters, which one is coming from where. You say, oh, this is from the bank. This is just from the bank. Oh, this is, I believe this is from NHS. And there is like a, do you think that they write a, a, a personalized letter for you? Even when banks, for example, try to promote certain products, do, they, do you think they write a specific letter for you? <coughs> or that the signature that is there is personal? Personalized signature? Definitely not. It's the, just the generic signature of the manager of that organization that is there possibly just <coughs> pasted on all the letters and just your name and details are, are added to the letter, isn't it? So there has to be a specific formula. Hmm? But in those days, what, what has happened is they had someone to write to every organization in the way that suits it. That's called Diwanul Inshya, the governmental correspondence. They have what we would call today the legal terminology. The legal terminology. If you're writing a treaty, the terminology you use has to be very specific. If you're writing to a king, the terminology you use has to be very specific. If you're writing to an ambassador, the terminology you use has to be very specific. Even, do you mention your name first or the person's name first? Uh, how do you uh, address them? With your excellency or your majesty or your royal highness, how do you address people? And what language should, should you use? So there is actually a ilm, there is a whole discipline that's called the al-shiruot wa It's a ilm that looks at how uh, cases are recorded and how communications are made. And people go and learn these, these ways of writing. So the first Diwan al-Insha was kind of made up of these writers <coughs> of the Prophet we can see that there are categories of writers. We have the people who write da'wah to the tribes. We call them kutab da'wah. These are individuals who would write uh, on religious matters to different Arab tribes. And we have the state secrets, kutab sir These are the people who will re- record things hmm, that are secret. It cannot be uh, shared with other government organizations okay, so when you when you get someone to write something or to type something, you know like today you have to have encrypted information that can if, if it is hacked it's a big it's a big problem if you work in a bank for example and then you have access to the uh, the, the the bank accounts of people in, in, if 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 your job in is relates to that so, what are they writing the scene? on? Skins or uh, on loads of things, even even uh, on skin, uh, and we will talk. will will talk about uh, will talk about the materials of writing as well, and who, may, who who used to make them. And we have the official correspondence. These are individuals called kuttab, al iqtaa kuttab al-rasā'il wal iqtaa and grants. So, for example, the Prophet sallallahu decides to give a piece of land to someone. It's like when the when uh, when uh, uh, the the government decides to grant you uh, money to study, for example, or a project, or to fund to fund something that you want to do. So a specific department will write to you. For example, if you are applying to uh, to to uh, w- uh, study in a university, then the university will send you an acceptance letter. But the funding for your Scholarship will not come from the university, it will come from the funding body. So, these, even though you're receiving two different communications to the same thing, but you're receiving it from two different organizations. Uh, so, individuals who, uh, or, or uh, writers or scribes whose specialism is correspondence and grants. And we had also the Kutabul Uhud Wa the writers or the scribes whose specialism is pacts and treaties. Remember, these individuals have to be, have to be very uh, equipped and to be very savvy on how to word treaties. <laughs> because when you write down uh, an agreement between you and your enemy, you have to be very clear. Imagine if they, if they say, oh, we, should, uh, we can take any alliance except with such and such, like, and they forget a few things, or the wording. Today, when people, when countries disagree on uh, borders or an understanding of a specific uh, treaty that has been written 50-60 years ago, they would go to the United Nations and they ask uh, international arbitrators to come and decide what does it actually mean. So there had to be uh, people who, who who write that. And then you have what we would call the people who are... Archivists and uh, registries. These are individuals who would write the, the, the names of children <laughs> who are born. Why? Because there is remember that the, that, that the state of the Prophet and afterwards the all the money that is collected used to be in what we would call <laughs> Baytul Mad the public treasury. And this public treasury had was there for the welfare of the, uh, of, of the people because remember that the value of humans in, in a Muslim society is very high we spoke earlier about pushing people into bloodshed for the sake of power but now we're talking about another aspect of that that people they don't have to work 24-7 they have to work definitely Everyone should work. But there are people who can't work. There are people who have other engagements that would stop them from working. For example, a person who has to look after disabled mother and daughter, son, family. Imagine someone has got some form of calamity or he's got some disability. How are you going to provide welfare for that individual? Or a person who earns but his uh, expenditure is higher than his earning. How are you going to cover that? It is the government's responsibility. Or an individual who is now supposed to retire. In some countries, it's very unfair that you find that people don't retire. I have seen countries that where people don't retire. A person is 80 years old and they don't they're not retired. And they do jobs that are absolutely unsuitable for their age. Like I have seen with my own eyes someone at the age of eighty. And he works in cleaning. Like he should be settling down. And is there pension in the in the country? No, there is no pension. Or if the pension is like $200 per month, the rent is is $2,000. So and we live in a society where people don't care about their elders. So how is that person going to look after themselves? Remember something like Jizya, for example, tribute, which is People make so much hoha about it. and That's not our topic today, but, but anyway, on, on, uh, that's, that's a, side, a side thing. Like, jizya was taken only from someone who can fight, and he's exempt from fighting. So it was not taken from women and children. And it wasn't taken from any person who is elderly. So a Jew or a Christian or a non-Muslim in a Muslim state who is unable to work, he used to receive money from the state, <laughs> not the other way around. He used to receive money from the state. When Sayyidina Umar radiyallahu anhu saw a man begging in the street, he said, what are you doing? He said, like, I'm asking people for money to pay my Jesus. He said, no, 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 you're not, you're not supposed to be paying anything. He said, look for a person of, like, look, at, look into the case of this man and people who are similar to him, give them from the money public treasury for how can we take money from them at their young age and now we're forcing them to... To, to, to beg to pay. So the, the government has a responsibility towards people. Because when people feel safe and when people feel satiated, they, their loyalty will be strong to the, to the, to the country and to, to the government. So there, there were Sayyidina Umar passed one day by a woman whose child was crying. And she said, why is he crying? She didn't know who that is. So why is that child crying? She said, I had to wean him off. And he's not two yet. <laughs> he said, so, why did you have to wean him off at, at such an early stage? She said, because Umar doesn't, doesn't give grants to children until they have been weaned off. Like, you know, when you get milk. <laughs> Remember back in the days uh, before, uh, before they took away the milk from kids? <laughs> so when the children used to get milk when they when, uh, all of these cobones where you can get loads of things, freebies for their children when the child reaches like two, now the child is no more depending on his mother's milk, he has other demands, so they would give every family like free milk free rice, free this, free that that's part of the responsibility of the state as well, helping, because the role of the, uh, the government is not just the, to govern people and to take their money but to also to help them so that lady was keen on getting these free things uh, way earlier. <laughs> and the condition was the child has to be weaned off. So Sayyidina Umar put it at the age of two. When a child reaches two, he is entitled directly to these <laughs> state things. So, no point, no. <laughs> uh, so, so he said, why are you weaning him off so early? She said, uh, to, to be able to have access to these things. So Sayyidina Amr ta'ala went back to his workers and he said to them, extend these free grants for children from the time of birth. We give it to them from the time of birth. You don't have to wean your child off before the time comes. <laughs> so he basically he solved the issue. He didn't say, okay, look for people who try to take money that is not theirs. You don't have to push people to find loopholes in the law to do these do these things so archives and registries births deaths uh, uh, military archives and so on and so forth and we had also monetary efforts the budgets, the money that is assigned to people and so on and so forth so for example these are some of the the, the 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 uh, things that that relate to that. The Prophet وسلم, is narrated in Kitab al-Masahif that the Prophet وسلم, said to Zayd ibn Thabit, Innahu, taatini kutub la ahub li ahd an The Prophet وسلم, said to Zayd ibn Thabit رضي الله تعالى عن, "There are books that come to me, or or there are messages that come to me that I don't like one anyone to read." فَتَعَلَّمْ Like, learn Hebrew language. أو قال, In another narration, السُورِيَانِيَّ Syrianic language. قَالَ فَتَعَلَّمْتُهَا فِي عشرة لَيْلَةِ I learned it in 17 nights. It's very quick. To learn a whole language in 17 nights. is very quick. But it indicates dedication. And I extracted from that. I personally extracted from that. What we would call... The blessing of a permission. That sometimes you do something on your own and you don't have any tawfiq in it. And then when you're given an ijazah or a permission to learn, you will find that it becomes very, very easy. So Zayd ibn Thabit radiallahu an did not just go and learn Hebrew language on his own. The Prophet said, learn. So when when someone learns something with permission of his teacher, the, Allah will facilitate things for him because it is as if he says, well, I think you're good in learning this. Learn that, and remember that Zayd was, was excellent in languages. Um, so, look at, at, at what the what the hadith says. I received these messages. I don't want anyone to read. Like I, I, I don't I, I don't trust other communities to read. I don't trust people to just have access to it. Zayd radiallahu ta'ala his, his job was to write Revelation, to write to uh, kings. And sometimes Zayd radiallahu ta'ala and, and Abdullah ibn Arqam as well. That was his specialism. But sometimes Zayd and Abdullah ibn Arqam, who are specialists in writing Revelation and writing to kings and monarchs, would not be there. He, صلى الله عليه وسلم, would command any other person to write them. <coughs> and he, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, one of the things that are very, very interesting in kitabah, in writing, is at you know, mud, clay. He, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, after writing a message, they would wrap it and they would put some mud or clay on it and, and seal it. You know, nowadays they have wax waxing things red wax and then sealing it if the seal is broken you can't actually you can't take it you can't receive it because the seal is broken it means that the information there has been accessed yeah so he, they, they used to have clay or or uh, dough <laughs> and then they would seal it he put the seal on it sallallahu alayhi wasallam said Abdullah ibn Arqam, عن, and this is very, very interesting as well. The Prophet وسلم, used to test these writers and these scribes' ability to respond. So, Abdullah ibn Arqam عن, was commanded by the Prophet وسلم, to write a response. So, he said to him, Write a response. Read the message, write a response. When he wrote the response, he said, عليه, after, I re- after I wrote it, I read it to him. He said, read to me what you have. how did you respond? asabta He said you wrote that was a good a good response. Kala Umar, this is very, very important as well. Umar said, When I heard the Prophet saying to Abdullah ibn Arqam that he was right in his response, Qala I kept it in my heart until I appointed him to be the public treasury. Archiver (laughs) What does that mean? When you find someone Who's been proven to be qualified You keep that person in mind And then later on use him Abdullah ibn Arqam Wrote a response In front of the Prophet The Prophet said Okay you read the message Write the response and let me see it When he saw it What was the Prophet's response? Yes this is correct It is validation, isn't it? It's like, you qualify. Umar ibn al khattab is not sitting there just listening. No, he kept in his mind that the (laughs) Prophet validation means it's an ijazah. This man is good. So he kept that name. You know when today, you go to a a meeting or to graduation, some some big companies, they go to graduation and see which students have actually done very well. And they take these lists of students and keep it, Or you send someone a CV and they know that they read your CV and it's a very good CV. Even if they don't give you a job on the spot, what do they do? They contact you after some years and they say, Well, we have uh, a database of qualified people and now we have a vacancy. Would you like to take that vacancy? The Prophet ﷺ said, Umar ibn al-Khattab said, I kept it in my mind. Many years when Umar became the Khalifa, he said, he contacted Abdullah ibn Arqam and he said, come, you become uh, the katib, the archiver of vital Man. Sayyidina Ali ibn Abi Talib رضي الله an, was his scribe for the Uhud, for treaties, and sulh and reconciliation with tribes. Why? Because Sayyidina Ali had an extensive experience and knowledge of the different tribes in Arabia. That's number one. And number two, because he's from Quraysh, And Quraysh were highly respected. So when you get someone to write down a uh, uh, treatise, you need to get someone who is very respected as well. Because sometimes people might, if he comes from a, a a, a low class or a tribe that's not recognized, it's not a great representation. I would take from this, I would take from this something very, very crucial and important. That in ministries of foreign affairs, they, in many countries, they look at the background of the person who becomes an ambassador. Because he represents his country. So in some countries, for example, if you become an ambassador, they would look if, if, if anyone in your family has any criminal record. <laughs> Even if it's like not directly related to you, possibly it's your cousin, but it's like a first cousin. They might say, oh, excuse me, you disqualify. From certain jobs, not every job, but from certain jobs... Not that you are taking the person for the sin of somebody else. But because of the that specific job. It is... Uh, like you might find someone who is brilliant. He's a brilliant mind. But he can't be a a public relation officer. <laughs> Why? He's very... Uh, uh, he's very unpresentable. <laughs> he doesn't have social skills. Yes. He's, he's, he's like... He's a, he's a great man, he's a geek. <laughs> but he's not good in, in public relation. Why? That, that doesn't quali- that he's disqualified in this area. But he's qualified somewhere else. So the Prophet ﷺ chose Sayyidina Ali because Sayyidina Ali this has been written by Ali ibn Abi Talib. So people will, will give weight to who Ali ibn Abi Talib ta'ala was. As Zubayr ibn al-Awam and jahm ibn al-Salt they would write the charities. Al-Hussein ibn Umayr Al-Mughir ibn Shu'aba, they would write his needs, sallam, his lists. They would write down the debts between people. You know, when you borrow money from someone, they would write down the debts and their transactions. Al-Quda'i, Imam Al-Quda'i wrote extensively about that. So we can see that it is, it's like training for these, uh, these uh, Sahaba, رضي in, in in the in the process of writing as well, there were some adab that relate to kitabah that ulama have taken from them. One of these is making letters distinctive. You know one of the, the qualifications of a katib is uh having khat, husn al khat, good good handwriting. Like you can't have like you can be scribbling and then you want to be a katib. you have to be a calligraphist. A proper calligraphist, Abdul Hamid al-Katib narrates from Salim bin Hisham al-Katib, from Abdul Malik ibn Marwan al-Katib, from Zayd ibn Thabit al-Katib. Said the Prophet وسلم, said, and this is uh, this is this text indicates that the Prophet وسلم, knew how to read and how to write. And uh, this is an opinion, very highly respected opinion, by Imam suyuti and others. Uh, that the Prophet wasallam learned how to read and write later in his life. But why didn't the Prophet وسلم, write with his hand? Because it's not suitable for a, a president or a top official in a state to write. You always have a writer, a katib, you ask him to come and, and write. In fact, Abu Walid ibn al-Baji mentions that the Prophet sallam even spoke languages. But also, in diplomacy, when you sit with a person from another country even if you know their language, you don't speak that language. Because it's not suitable. You speak your own language, your own national language, and he speaks his own national language. And then you have a translator in between. We forget about many Muslim presidents who speak English to English-speaking countries. That's only one, one side of our khaybah, our failure, because we. it is always the vanquished that submits and surrenders to the victorious. But generally, you will find presidents of countries, that uh, other than Arab countries, that speak a language other than English, even though they, they would understand English, but they wouldn't speak English to you. Like a German uh, president, they wouldn't speak English. Or French. French. Yeah, French. Like in, in, in Paris, every time you go there, they understand you, and they would respond in French, even if you don't understand what they're saying. It is about language and national identity are very li- related. But unfortunately, countries that have been colonized by, by uh, uh, France or by uh, Britain or by other countries, they, they just adopt the language and the culture of, the, of their vanquishers. So the Prophet ﷺ said to, and this, this hadith shows how he knew the shape of the letters. When you spend your lifetime with forty-two scribers who write the revelation to you and write this and that, it's very impossible not to know the shape of the letters. Mm-hmm. If someone keeps writing something. If you say something to someone, if you if you write something to someone, if you have a child in front of you and you say one thing, if they want, they will say they, they will respond. Like my daughter is 14 months. If she wants something she'll say, yes It's <laughs> just like a deep breath and you Yes, <laughs> you know right away, you know right away, she fears the hoover, so every time she's in a hoover, <laughs> and she's just like 14 months, even if you bring her too close to the hoover, she would run away, as if there is a jinn in the hoover, <laughs> so if a child is, is, is so smart that they pick up these things, so Sayyidina Rasulullah said to, to his writers, إِذَا بِسْمِ اللَّهِ Rahim When you write بِسْمِ اللَّهِ الرَّحْمَنِ الرَّحِيمِ فَبَيِّنِ السِّينَ فِيهِ Make sure that the scene is clear. Make sure that the scene is clear. Why? Because the scene in the رِقْعَة is just like a line. So sometimes we'll make it short. So it doesn't show, show up. Or sometimes if the people wrote there like the three parts of the scene, it, it requires to be a bit up. Otherwise it might be similar to something else. One of the adab of writing is to put the pen in the ear uh, when you when you need to think uh, when you're thinking what shall i write why because once you put the pen away you, you look for the pen you know, by the time you look for it you have forgotten what you were thinking قال, he said if you are writing Keep the pen on your ear for it is it is better for you to remember. It's easier for you to remember that it's here. Oh, sometimes people put, put it in their ear and they still look for it. ilmumli, <laughs> And it also reminds the person who is dictating. If someone is dictating something, they will remember. تَجْوِيدُ الْكِتَابَ Like one of the things is perfecting your writing. He said that Muawiyah said that he used to write in front of the Prophet ﷺ فَقَالَ He said put the ink pot on the side sharpen your pen sharpening your pen is very very important as well. Wa and make the bat standing make the bat standing wa وفا... seam و... and se- separate the seam, make the seam long, elongate the seam. wa الْمِيمِ and don't like make the meme like a dot uh, make it round. rahman and when you write Ar Rahman, make it long. Wajaw with Ar Rahim. And write the Rahim in a perfect way. Look, th- these are the words of the Prophet in perfecting the writing. One of the things as well relating to that is at Tatrib, dusting the writing. Remember, in the, when you write with ink, what happens if you wrap the, the, the document right away? It goes to the yes, yes. It will be smudging. it's smudging it, so they used to put some dust, like a specific type of dust, very reddish dust. They just sprinkle it on the ink so that the ink dries very quickly. Nowadays when you have like a fast drying ink, it is better rather than the ink that... Like the other day I was stamping a certificate and then I left it. I had to leave it like for 10 minutes to dry. The Prophet ﷺ... Said if hadith tell me the Ida Kataba Hadukum if you ever write a message, Fellutaribhu, huh? dust it. Fa in It is it it makes it blessed. Wahua Anjahuri Hajate. Because like once you dust it it means like it's done. Uh and uh, and 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 it is even, some some sometimes people would ask, what if the, uh, the message or has, has bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Can I put dust on it? Yes, it's recommended to do so. At-Tatrib uh, Jais. Now, if we quickly analyze the uh, writings of the Prophet Wasallam, the messages of the Prophet Wasallam, he always cited his name first. Whenever he would speak to a royalty, he would say, Min Muhammad Rasulillah ila From Muhammad, the Messenger of Allah, to such and such. Or min Muhammad, عَبْدِ wa وَرَسُولِهِ to fulan But he would say, Min رَسُولِ اللَّهِ And what do we take from that? That when you write something, you should mention your name. And you should mention your job as well. Or something that you are known with. Why? The ulama said, Al fatwa bima alam nisbadu. A given fatwa from a book that does not have, that does not bear the name of a writer or an author is not jazz. You can just find a book in the library and there is no details of a writer or author or anything and just pick it up and it's a book in fiqh and say, I read in a book that it is allowable to do such and such. Who has written that book? I don't know because the cover page is not there. So you will find in all the traditional books, they will start with, Yaqulo Fulan, Qala Muhammadun Hua Bn Maliki, Muhammad son of Malik, Yaqulo Abdul Wahidi ibn Ashiri, Yaqulo Raji Rahmatil Qadiri, Ahmadul Mashhuru ibn Dardiri, so on and so on. They will mention their name because you cannot quote a book without knowing who the author of that book is. Min Muhammadir Rasulillah, and he would mention his uh, main jobs. That is, he's the messenger of Allah. He would separate the topics with the uh, with the with the word amma ba'd The word amma ba'd always tells us here we we're going to the topic now. This is the most important thing. He will mention the name or the title of the addressee. If he's writing to Kisra or Qaysar or uh, An individual, he would write, he would write uh, the either their name or their title. But he, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, would if the person is uh, Malik, is a king, he, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, would not write the king. He would write. عظيم عظيم كذا so for example if he write, if he's writing to Kisra or to Qayser he would write he would write إلى Qaysera عظيم Room. عظيم means the great of or the leader of why wouldn't he write because that indicates acknowledgement of his kingdom it indicates acknowledging his kingdom that he is a king and the prophet is writing to him to say you accept islam so you can't acknowledge his kingdom and at the same time say you accept islam Was is this the same for the king of habashi azim al <laughs> Yeah, always. عظيم al عظيم الروم, al furs عظيم of means like the, the one whom people venerate. Like the one whom the supreme leader of such and such. But when you say Malik, it means you're acknowledging his uh, kingdom. And uh, that's Sheikh Zarruq Al-Fasi said, in the maqala le qaisara, adhimur rum, in the maqala le qaisara, he said to Caesar, adhimur rum, walam yakul malikar rum, li ala yakuna takiririran li so that he is not acknowledging his kingdom. But he still, he could have said qaisar, arumi, he could have just like said qaisar, and that's it. But why did he add adhimur rum right next to it? If he would say qaisar, why did he add, Acknowledging his title. Yes, and softening their hearts. To soften his heart at the same at the same time the prophet sallallahu sometimes would, would some uh, he used his C, uh, he would start with bismillah even if even if it is to a christian or to a non muslim he wrote that sallallahu alaihi wasallam to caesar and to uh, yuhanna ibn ruba who was the the governor of Ayla that was Used by the ulama to prove that it is permissible to engrave Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim on dirhams and dinars, because remember that dirhams and dinars coins will go in hands of people who are Muslims and non-Muslims, so it will be circulated. That's and that's uh, that's why some ulama and some fuqaha say that Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim is what, huh? Is not part, some fuqaha say it is part, and some will say it's not part of the Qur'an. It is, it is there to separate the surahs. Some fuqaha they say no, it is part of the Qur'an. Others would say no, it's not part of the Qur'an. They said, those, those who say it's not part of the Qur'an, they took, they took from that the fact that it can actually be circulated it can be engraved on coins and it can be circulated. Sometimes the Prophet sallallahu he, wasallam, he will always use his seal to stamp the messages and he banned people from imitating his inscription remember what was the inscription of the seal of the Prophet Muhammad and then Rasul and then Allah Muhammad in one line Rasul in one line and Allah in one line and it was like that it was inverted so that when when, when, when you, when, when you, when you uh, stamp it, yes. Yeah. So there was a question actually some, a sister asked many years ago. Was it inverted or what? I, I had to look into the books of uh, Sirah until I came across uh, a by al Hafiz ibn Hajar al-Asqalani where he says, مكتوبة, uh, It's like it's, it was inverted. Uh, in some messages, the Prophet وسلم, and there is something very, very important here. The Prophet wasallam made a ring. That's that's a ring to wear. And that had a stone, and some had no stones. These are rings that he used to wear. But this is not a ring that he used to wear. That's a seal that he used to stamp things with. But it had a halqa. it had a ring. So sometimes he would wear it, and sometimes he would keep it. And there was a man called Muayqib, whose main job was to take care of the ring of the Prophet. And the Prophet would ask Muayqib to come, give him the ring, and he would stab on it. The Prophet, when he took a ring, people made rings. When he made a seal, people thought that they can make seals or rings that have got that inscription. And the Prophet banned them from this. Why? Because now this is a sign of the government. It's a governmental (laughs) stamp. You can't just go like, for example, home office and make a a stamp like that of the home office, what will that be called? Forgery. That's forgery. So he banned people from doing that because that's forgery. Once a ring or a, a, a logo or a slogan becomes a public ownership or an ownership of a company or a name, for example, you, if you want to register a company, you, have to, you go and check if the name is available or not available. Why? There will be confusion in entities. <laughs> if you have like five companies that have the same name, there will be so much confusion. So, some messages contained lengthy rulings and details, like the message to Amr ibn Hazm. And that's uh, Kitabu, وسلم, his, his uh, message to Amr ibn Hazm, عنه, is actually the longest of all the messages. The Prophet ﷺ wrote to Amr ibn Hazm because Amr ibn Hazm was a, a kind of a leader of a tribe. He was a, royal, a royalty, but he was a leader of a tribe, So, the, and he accepted Islam. So the Prophet ﷺ wrote to him the details. When you write to a Muslim, you explain. So in that book, he explained some fiqh rulings, zakah, diya. Uh, uh, he, uh, he, he sent who ibn bin Abd and others he uh, warned warned the man from, from injustice he sallallahu alaihi wasallam banned him from uh, from uh, causing trouble to other tribes and doing injustice to them and the and the at, the at the very end of that message very there is a very beautiful text which I, I quote here he said وسلم, to Amr bin Ibn, ibn Hazm that, that's the longest message that professor sent to a royalty he said wa من أسلم من يهودي أو نصراني and any Jew or a Christian who accepts Islam إسلاما خالصا Min Nafsi he accepts Islam purely out of his own free will فدان دين Islam and he accepts Islam as a religion فإنه من المؤمنين he's a believer ومن كان على نصرانيته أو يهوديته and whoever remains in his Judaism or Christianity, فَإِنَّهُ لَا يُغَيَّرُ عَنْهَا He is not to be forced to change it. That's a very clear text. Saying to people who nowadays launch global jihad, to push people away from their religion, and say no, you either give the jizya or do... He said, فَإِنَّهُ لَا يُغَيَّرُ عَنْهَا He should not be pushed to, to leave it. Uh, he sallallahu alayhi wa in in some messages uh, or some 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 uh, correspondence he would date it he would date it right the date it is commonly known huh? it is commonly known that the first one who started the tareek the date was who anyone knows umar radhiyallahu That it's Umar radiallahu anhu. Because remember, that Arabs lost track of dates. Why? Because they used to practice something called a Which is, they had four, they had four months every year that are prohibited to fight in. What are they? Remember? And can anyone remind me? What is Ramadan? Uh, Muharram No, Ramadan is not of them <laughs> Muharram Rajab Shaban, No huh? Dhul-Hijjah And Dhul-Qa'dah It goes like this Dhul-Qa'dah Dhul-Hajjah Muharram Together Right? Dhul-Qa'dah Dhul-Hajjah Muharram Following each other al Rajab it's home Huh? Yes So these four months They were not allowed to fight But Arabs wanted sometimes to fight. They wanted to revenge. A tribe wanted to revenge from another tribe. And it just happens that, you know what? This is going to be Muharram, Or it's going to be the hajjah So what they did, they had a man called Al-Qillas. That's his title, Al-Qillas. Al-Qillas was like a priest. His main job was to allow them to fight in the sacred months by calling the sacred months one of the sacred months a different month so he will say for example inni ahlaltu lakum muharrama this year you can fight in muharram so muharram will not be called muharram anymore what will they call muharram of that year? safar so the year will start from safar Onwards so suffer suffer. What is after muharram suffer, but now muharram has become suffer. So suffer becomes Rabia and then Rabi awal becomes rabia and so on and so forth next year After they finish arafa and they're about to go home after Hajj the qillas will stand Among this them and they will gather and they will ask him this year. What can we do? He will say to them so what will happen? The year will shift. So this year, Muharram became Safar. Next year, Safar becomes something else. The following year, it will be the year. Star- the year was like moved. Does that make sense? So it is like a rotor. Yeah. Every month takes its its turn in being violated. So how does this affect? Uh- I'll I'll, 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 I'll come to that in a minute. So what happened is they needed a full circle of 12. They needed a full circle of 12 to take one, oh this is Muharram, oh next year Muharram is here, next year Muharram. So Muharram was kept what? Moving. So in fact for all of the time when the Prophet was in Mecca, no months that we... We, we, we know as Jumada was actually fully Jumada. There was always changes in the dates. Even when the Prophet ﷺ made his hijrah, there was confusion. The actual date of Hajj kept moving, isn't it? Well, you might think it kept moving for three days. It's not a big thing, like only three days every year or something like that. But what happens after 30 years or 50 years or hundred years It's no more uh, Three days difference. It's like 70 days or something like that So only when the Prophet وسلم, was in Arafah in Hajjatul Wada' It was the completion of the full circle and time came back in place. So Muharram Was actually going to be Muharram So the Prophet sallallahu did Hajj on the 10th of Dhul Hijjah, right? or the, eight, uh, the, ninth, the ninth of the Hijjah, huh? the ninth of the Hijjah, on that, which year, Ibrahim? 10th year or 11th year? Yeah. 10th year. So the 11th year of the Hijrah, first of Muharram, yes, 11th after the Hijrah. that was the actual start of Muharram. Yeah. So the, the following Muharram would have been, that is the first. I wrote a lengthy article about that in Arabic, and I delivered it in the promised green masjid. And we proved that through looking at the Jewish date, the Jewish year, because the Jewish year, and the, the, it's a lunar calendar. So looking at that, you will, by, by calculation, you realize that it's actually the first of Muharram after the Hajj al-Wada' would have been the real first of Muharram. In that day, on the 9th of Muharram, on the 9th of the Hijjah, the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم said something very interesting. He said, inna zanana, the time has taken a full دَوْرَة A full circle In the same way as it was on the day Allah created heavens and earth. No one is allowed to play with it anymore. زِيَادَةٌ فِي الْكُفْرِ You can't play with it anymore. <laughs> Today, this is... So why didn't the Prophet ﷺ prohibit Nasi way before? Because it was not a full circle yet. It would add to the confusion. Okay, so when are we going to start Muharram? So there was a hikman in such a delay for so many years until that year. And one of the latest surahs revealed in the Quran is Surah at tawbah Surah al-Tawbah was revealed around 9 in the Hijrah. And it contains the ayah about an Nasi. kufr. عاما. وَوْحَرِّمُونَهُ عَامًا One year they would allow it, next year they wouldn't. So sometimes when they needed to extract Muharram, they would say, okay, Muharram is no more Muharram, it has The next year they would say, no, we don't need to fight. Okay, forget about this year. But when, in a, in a year's time, in two years' time, when they want to uh, you choose another month, they will not choose Muharram. Muharram has taken its its turn. Choose something else. So they, they kept playing with it. The The full detail is not with me at the moment. But insha'Allah possibly can, can bring it uh, back to you. But why would it al Why does it why? Because it was an additional ritual that they did. On top of everything else. They were already like worshipping idols. They were already prohibiting certain types of camels. So a camel that gives birth to five male camels in a row... In like five years, they would say, Oh, we can't actually touch it, we can't ride it, we can't eat it, we can't slaughter it. So, what they would do, they will cut part of its ear and they will leave it uh, wandering in the desert. That's called Saiba. A male camel that impregnates a female camel, 10 females, like in a, in a, like every year she gives birth to a female, they would say, Ham, this is called Ham. Ham, that's a name. Of, of that male camel, and they wouldn't, ride him, they wouldn't ride that ham, and then no one touches the ham. So that was a, a ritual. One of the things that they added as well is... is... Uh, qidah. The... Masir. What is Masir? Maysir is, you want to go out to make a journey, and then you, you, you take, like, three pieces of wood, write on one of them, do it, uh, don't do it, <laughs> the other, and then... It, you you ask someone, you go and pay someone, to the, the person who has that uh, maizir, who does that for you, the job of that person, is known in Arabic as Yasir. You know, when someone is called Yasir, <laughs> it's coming from Yusir, obviously, from Ease. But the, uh, what's his name? Uh, Al-Shamfara, Al-Shamfara uh, Ibn Amr, who is a uh, Jahili poet, he says, something fi, fi ayadi Yasiri. It's in the hands of a Yasir. So that person would basically... It's like today, a lot of Muslims have inherited this habit. You want to do something and you go to someone and say, please, can you make dua for me to see... You make dua for yourself. You need someone, or you need something. The best one to make dua is yourself. Because you are, you, you are, you are the person who is in need. No one can express your case better than you. So, you need something, go and, go and make dua. Unfortunately, uh, it, it, it's not to say that it's haram for, to ask someone to make dua for you. No, that's, that's a form of like asking someone to, to like, uh, make a dua for someone in his absence. But what I'm objecting to is when you go to an imam and pay him money and say, please, can you see if my daughter will be happy with that proposal or not? Why should you pay someone to do that? And the Imam or the Sheikh or the Mawlana happily takes that. This is a form of Akhlu Amwal Nasbil batil You're eating people's money without right. You don't. You, there is nothing called money for dua. You go and give someone five pounds and say, please, five pounds dua. <laughs> in, Egypt, uh, in Egypt, they used to have. Uh, they had something called Palat Ragan. Uh, every day, every, uh, every month of Rajab, in the first day of Rajam, Egyptians believe that in the month of Rajab, you should go and visit the dead. So that was like a tradition. Uh, obviously, in, in villages, it's even worse. And, and, and it was actually an occasion for ladies just to chat and, and joke and talk in their graveyard. So you will find in the first day of Rajab, look, a few days before Rajab, where Rajab starts, any lady who's a, a widow, or even if she's not a widow but she has someone who's passed away, her brother or her, uh, father or something, they will go and make something called sharik, make something like pastries. They will go and <laughs> bake it, and they get a lot of bananas <laughs> and uh, an orange. And they will go to the graveyard, and there are people who, Masaki, they, they, they would recite for, and maybe some short surahs for some of this and, and for, or, yeah, <laughs> some fees and stuff. So these ladies would go, and on their way to the graveyard, they are joking. A hundred meters away from the graveyard, they would start crying. they get into the mood of bewailing the dead. And it was something really bad. So they mentioned <laughs> that this lady went to the grave of, uh, of her husband, and she met one of these guys, who is not a sheikh or a reciter or anything. He just, he just makes money. He just goes in there to make money. So he didn't know anything. So she gave him a uh, kirsch. It's like one piaster. Yeah. So he took the kirsh, put it in his pocket and he started reciting <laughs> which doesn't belong it's not Quran. It's like neither in the heaven, neither in the heavens or earth. Neither in heavens or earth. She said, Oh, where did you put my husband? Is not do you want him to go to Jannah for one piaster? Like, pay a bit more, and then I can put him in jannah. <laughs> so, so she gave him some small money. He said, neither in heavens or earth, in between. She said, he will be hanging like that until he give me one jine, uh, one pound. Then I will say, he <laughs> al So that's a form of eating people's money without, without any... Is it a joke or is this a true story? No, no, it's a joke. I was wondering if it's true. Well, knows. could be true. <laughs> yes, something like that. And actually, we had, we, we had a, an auntie, a relative, who used to come all the way from Cairo, to and, and her, her, her pastries were so nice. So we used to sneak at night as children and eat half of them. And she says, what's happening? Like yesterday, I came with a whole basket full. It's gone to like half. it possibly that dead person came in <laughs> and he had some over the night? So it, that that's that's the that's that's what we're we're talking about. The Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, after after many years, said Na Umar ta'ala, started putting a dating system that had, everything has to be documented with dates. So he looked. How can we? What should be the point where we say, okay, we're dating from that day? Before Islam, Arabs used to date things according to events, so they said five years after the elephant, and ten years before the elephant, and fifty years after the Kaaba, uh, the building of the Kaaba. So what happened after that? There was always difference between the between the ulama because of this habit of nasi in regarding all the events. Until today when we read the, the seerah, they say, this battle is in this month. You will find in another, in another book, no, it's in this month. This discrepancy is because of this habit. So the only thing that was agreed upon was the hijrah of the Prophet That's on a Monday. So they took that to be the first day, and they dated from, from that. But the Prophet ﷺ actually used the Hijrah as a date before that. He commanded Sayyidina Ali رضي الله when he wrote to the uh, Christians of Najran to date it on the 5th of the Hijrah. So he ﷺ used the Hijrah as a uh, date. Dusting uh, uh, the writing. Who would carry the... Uh, there is a there is very, very interesting thing here which is... Uh, which is uh, uh, nice that the has the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam written. Hmm? Has the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam written? Yes, uh, Amr ibn Shabba wrote from Mujahid, uh, from Aoun bin Abdullah that Nabi, sallallahu Alaihi wasallam, Hatta to cut the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam did not die until he wrote and read. Al Bukhari narrated that because. Uh, Imam Abu Bakr ibn Arabi says that they have confirmed that he is unlettered. And the need for that afterwards was gone. There was no need for him to continue. Imam al dahabi even agrees like and Imam al Hafiz ibn al-Jawzi that the Prophet وسلم, was able to write sallam was able to write and his hand was was easy with the, with that. He Wasallam also uh, had ambassadors whom he, sallallahu alayhi wa sent to uh, fulfill certain missions. And one of the things that we notice in that is that an ambassador should be an intelligent and wise and an eloquent person because he represents his country. So not just that he has the knowledge, not just he's a graduate of a, of a specific school, but he has also to be a person of intelligence, wisdom, and eloquence. For example, when Dihya Al-Kalbi, that's the ambassador that the Prophet sent to uh, Qaisar, Qaisar said to him, Who sent you? He said, Someone who is better than you has sent me to you. So listen and... Uh, respond in a, wise, in a wise way the way he addressed Qaisar shows that he is intelligent when the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi sent Hatib ibn Abi Balta'a and even the choice of these messengers, these ambassadors he sent Hatib ibn Abi Balta'a to Egypt why Hatib ibn Abi Balta'a Hatib ibn Abi Balta'a had a long experience in Egypt before Islam he visited Egypt so many times that they said he even had houses in Alexandria. And remember that at that time, Alexandria was the capital. Al muqawqas used to live in Alexandria. So, Hatib knew Alexandria and knew Egypt very, very well. When he sent him to uh, Al muqawqas and remember that Al muqawqas was a governor of Egypt. And he was not Egyptian himself, he was a governor in Egypt. Remember, Egypt at that time was under the Roman Empire, so Al-Muqawqas was uh... in fact Al-Muqawqas was Egyptian, Al-Muqawqas was Egyptian, but uh... he was governing in the name of the Romans. When the Prophet ﷺ addressed him, he said, إِلَى الْمُقَوْقَس عَظِيمِ الْقِبْطِ the leader of the copts So he did not remind him of his job, he reminded him of his position, or his nationality and his loyalty. al was hesitant. Because just like any governor who represents a foreign government in his own country, he is hesitant, he doesn't want to lose his job. He doesn't want to lose his job. Even though it could have been Moving from one government to another government or from one authority to another authority, but he was afraid, so he was like one leg here and one leg back and forth. So he did not respond to the Prophet, sallallahu positively, neither did he respond negatively. What did Kisra do? He cut the message of the Prophet, ﷺ. he took his sword and he cut the message in halves. Qaisar went to his people and he gathered his uh, priests and patriarchs and he uh, said to them, what do you think, shall I follow this man? And they were very angry, so he said to them, I wanted to test your, religious, your religion, if you're committed or not. Uh, the Negus and Najashi, he accepted, and he accepted Islam right away. But Al-Muqawqas was very interesting. He neither refused completely nor accepted completely. So what he did his reply to the prophet sallallahu alaihi was a very mild reply he said بلغني, i think it was uh, it was um uh, قيصر, he said balagani i heard that a prophet will come so I that there is a prophet that's coming but but he didn't say anything else al-muqawqa said pretty much the same thing but he said, وَقَدْ أَرْسَلْتُ رَسُولِكَ I have sent with your messenger هدايا, Gifts So he sent gifts to the Prophet But he did not accept Islam He did not say anything So he said You see the reply One refused completely One accepted completely And the other two Christian monarchs Qaisar He said, I I was told that وَقَدْ عَلِمْتُ أَنَّنَا that this is the time of a Prophet. But he didn't say anything. But Al-Muqawqas, he sent a very mild message and he sent to the Prophet Sallallahu Wasallam Al-Qibtiya, whom the Prophet Sallallahu Wasallam married and another, another uh, slave whom the Prophet Sallallahu Wasallam gave to Sayyidina Hassan ibn Thabit and he married her and he sent a servant and he sent uh, Bagla, a mule and uh, he sent a few other gifts to the Prophet Sallallahu Wasallam. But that was after a conversation he had with Hatib ibn Abi Balta'a that showed that how Hatib was very intelligent. So amongst the things that he said to him, ما منعه أن, يدعو علي, على, uh, أن يدعو علي Like why did not he make dua against those uh, who refused him? Like why didn't your, your messenger make dua against those who refused him? مَا مَنْعَهُ أَنْ يَدْعُوَ عَلَيَّ So quickly said to him, what has stopped Isa from making dua against the people who refuse to acknowledge that he is a messenger? So he said, also, Al-Muqawqas uh, mentioned to Hatib uh, to when Hatib when uh, told him that sometimes the Prophet sallallahu Quraysh in the, uh, he, he, he defeated them in the battle and sometimes they defeated him. So Al-Muqawqa uh, said النبي يغلب. Can a Prophet be defeated? <laughs> you see that? Can a Prophet be defeated? wal Ilahu yuslab," And a God is crucified. Remember that Christians used to believe in the crucifixion. Because mm-hmm. huh? they were called Ahlul Kitab at that time. They used to believe in that. Ilahu yuslab." That's called uh, uh, al-badiha, al- 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 like hudur al-badiha, being quick-witted, Sharp. uh, sharpness. <clears throat> Imam al-Baqillani, a great theologian, Abu Bakr al-Baqillani, had something very similar to that. He was invited to, uh, to, to, to meet uh, the, the Roman king many years. Like Imam al-Baqillani was alive about 600 Hijri. <clears throat> so he was sent by his uh, by his uh, sultan or his khalifa to meet that king, and he knew the king knew that this guy is is one of the uh, the great theologians and great scholars, so he decided to do something to kind of force him to uh, to to uh, to uh, be kind of defeated to humiliate him. So he there was like a, a very short door that leads to the court of the king. So he said to his messengers, when you bring him, bring him from that door. So because the door is so short, he has to bow down. And he knows that Muslims don't bow down to anyone. (laughs) Imam al Rahim rahimahullah, recognized it right away. So he entered with his back. So as soon as they said, like, you coming from this door, he turned his back to the king and he came with his back. Now he's bowing down to the other direction. Then the king said to him in his conversation... جرى, uh, what is the news about Aisha? You know <coughs> that in the seerah, the accusation that was uh, raised against Sayyidah Aisha and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala acquitted her in the Qur'an. So he said, similar to that of Maryam, except uh, uh, and the Qur'an came acquitting her. <laughs> you see how, how how he picks on things, because the Jews accused Sayyidah Maryam, <laughs> then he said to him <clears throat> now Imam is, al-Baqilani is attacking so he said to uh, the patriarch the leader of the, of the church standing next to the king so he turned to the patriarch and he said how are you and how is your wife and children so the king said oh glorious God this is the patriarch he doesn't, he's, he's a monk he's celibate, he doesn't get married he doesn't have a wife or children he said Oh subhanallah, <laughs> like the patriarch doesn't have wife or children, and you claim that God has a wife and children and a child, <laughs> has a wife and son. <laughs> so that's, that's quick-wittedness. One of the things that we notice about amb- ambassadors as well, is that ambassadors need to be good-looking and presentable. We spoke about that before, but Dihya Al-Kalbi radiallahu ta'ala, whom the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa chose to go to the Qaysar, uh, Imam al aini mentions, His face was very handsome. Because when you send someone who looks very ugly, or someone who is very unpresentable, it reflects the, the 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 country that is sending him. Ambassadors also need to be made aware of their mission and approach. Like to tell them how to approach their, their message. The Prophet ﷺ, when he sent his uh, messengers, he uh, said, Allah has sent me as a mercy So deliver May Allah have mercy on you Deliver in this way Bear that in mind Don't differ from what I say to you Don't change the message I have come as a mercy He وسلم, would send people When he would send people for missions He would say to them Bashiru وَلَا nafiru. Give glad tidings to people. Don't push people away. وَيَسِّرُ وَلَا تُعَسِّرُ Make things easy for people. And he said that to Abu Musa al-Ash'ari and to Mu'ad ibn Jabal ta'ala, He صلى الله عليه وسلم would assign, as we said, would assign individuals for certain missions, foreign missions. So we had رسول Da'wa, Like these are the messengers, the ones that we've talked about. They were people of da'wah. Their main mis- m- mission is to deliver messages that relate to da'wah. Dihya al-Kalbi, Abdullah ibn Hudhafa, Amr ibn Umayyah, Salat ibn Amr, and so on and so forth. And uh, uh, Imam al-Zurqani, rahimahullah, the, or the, the commentator on uh, shifa and, and other books, he says something very interesting. He says, he sent six people in one day to different places, to different monarchs. <laughs> that morning, each one of them was able to speak the language of the people whom he sent to. That could be that they learned it, or could be that it was a, a miracle of the Prophet ﷺ, that when he said, Oh, you go to this place and you go to that place and you go to that place, they were able with his Miracles, Sallam, to speak that language. We had also individuals who are assigned to, uh, like peace messengers. They are there uh, he, وسلم, to. He, Sallam, sent Kharash ibn Umayya al huzai to Quraysh. In when when he started a peace treaty with them, he sent Umayr ibn Wahab, radiAllahu an. This is very very interesting. After fatah Makkah, some people who refused the Prophet, Sallam, decided to run away. One of them is Safwan ibn Umayya. His father is Umayyah ibn Khalif, a big enemy of the Prophet. Safwan ibn Umayyah, remember, he, uh, if some years back, after the death of Umayyah ibn Khalif in the Battle of Badr, his son, Safwan ibn Umayyah, this man we're talking about, he sat, he, he came to the Kaaba and he found a man called Umayyah ibn Wahab al Jumahi. Umair ibn Wahhab al-Jumahi, for the Husna students who can remember that, Umair ibn Wahhab al-Jumahi used to be called Shaytan al-Arab, the devil of Arabs. was a very dangerous man. Umair ibn Wahhab had a son who was captured in the Battle of Badr. And he wanted to get his son out of, uh, get his son's freedom, but he didn't have money to pay as a ransom. So he sat there thinking, how am I going to get my son out of this? Safwan so ibn Umayyad just lost his father. He was killed. And he was a a rich man. So he came to Umair ibn Wahab and he said to him what are you doing here? If I can only find someone to go and kill this man Muhammad who has killed like they have killed my father so Umair ibn Wahab al said you know, I have my son as well. There they have captured him. But I wish I can go and do that job but I have children, young children I have debts I have commitments. So Safwan ibn umayyah said to him, don't worry here is a sword that has been soaked with poison. Your children are my children. I will pay all your debts. Don't worry. Here is the sword. Just go and kill him. You get your son's freedom and you kill him. So Umar ibn Wahhab al jumahi took the sword and he made his way to Medina. When he arrived in Medina, he asked about the Prophet. ﷺ. So the Sahaba asked him, What do you want? Umar ibn Khattab said, This is Shaitan uh, Quraysh. This is the devil of Quraysh. He's here. He hasn't come for something good. He said, well, uh, he has to find an excuse. He said, I'm coming asking you if you can free my son, if you can let my son free. I, I, don't, I, don't, I can't afford paying you any money for him. If you, can, if you can do me this favor. So he said, so why are you carrying a, a sword? You're coming to seek peace. Why are you carrying a sword? He said, no, these swords, what can you do about it? It didn't do anything to us. It did it help us in battle. You know, this is, you're distracting the person from the point. He's like, Someone, why are you carrying a gun then? Oh, you know, <laughs> like you have no excuse. He said, Like, min like the, Hal So Umar ibn Khattab went to the Prophet. He said, Umayyib ibn Wahhab is here. He wants to speak to you and he has his sword. So the Prophet said, Take the sword away from him. And he, he brought him. And then Umar, he was asked the same question and he repeated the same answer. The Prophet said to him, huh? No. You sat next to the Kaaba and you thought of this and this and this, and you had that conversation with Safan ibn Umayyad. No one was present in that conversation. It was only him and Safan ibn Umayyad. So, Umayyad ibn Wahhab realized that he couldn't have been told about that except through revelation. So, he said, an Allah <laughs> ilaha illallah. He accepted Islam right away. And the Prophet ﷺ let his son go with him for free when he accepted Islam. So, Umayyad went back to Makkah. <laughs> He is not afraid of anyone. This man is a criminal. Who would like to trouble trouble? (laughs) He's a a big trouble himself. No one would like to to get into trouble with such a guy. So he went back to Mecca and said, Look, don't talk about Muhammad and don't do anything to him. I am here. I have accepted Islam. Years pass. And after Fath Mecca, after the Mecca was reconquered and the Prophet came back to Mecca, some people who had long enmity with the Prophet had to run away. Of Them, Safwan ibn Umayyah, the man who was financing that mission of assassination, <laughs> he ran away. He can't face the Prophet. Wa How can you face someone whom you financed a mission to kill him? The Prophet, wa sallam, whose heart encompasses and accommodates everyone, he said, Well, I give him amnesty, I give Safwan ibn Umayyah amnesty, let him come back. So he chose someone to go to Safwan <laughs> and tell him you're safe, come back, your life is safe. Whom did he choose? Umair ibn al <laughs> The same man who was sent by Safwan to kill the Prophet ﷺ is being sent back to Safwan. You're safe. But how he would go and say, you're safe, he has to give a sign. <clears throat> and this, is, uh, this was a protocol. So he gave him his turban. The Prophet ﷺ gave him his own turban. And he said, take my turban and give it to him and say, this is a proof that I am I'm not volunteering. There is no ambush for you. There is no trap for you. This is, this is real. And he gave him four months. He said, look, you're free. Think for yourself. If you want to go away or you want to come back, you, if you come back, you are safe. And he came back and he accepted Islam. It's very, very interesting. So that's, that's a messenger, it's a specific messenger, bringing, bringing people, giving people some, some form of peace. There are messengers whose job is to fulfill, you know, today, when people are taken as hostages, for example, or when some uh, subjects of a country are, are in another country and there is war in that country, or uh, they need to come home, what do countries do? They will send a specific envoy, isn't it? Messenger, specific delegation to bring these subjects back. Who has who has seen Argo? Does anyone know what Argo is? The movie. Yeah, the movie. Yeah, yeah. like sending these when 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 these American subjects were in Iran and they were brought back to uh, out of uh, out of the land. Whom did they send? They sent like a group of. Convoy of special Yeah, you see, like special convoys. Or oh, and, and other countries when for example, British subjects in, in 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 another country they need to come home, so they have to send like specific special uh invoys and convoys to, to bring them back. So that is the Prophet wa sallam, sent Amr ibn Umayyad Dumari to bring back the Abyssin the Muslims in Abyssinia. Uh, and he sallallahu brought him. So and he, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, also sent someone, assigned someone to represent him in the marriage of Um Habiba, radhiyallahu anha. Um Habiba, daughter of Abu Sufyan, was in Abyssinia. So the Prophet, sallallahu deputized someone to represent him in that marriage. He's like and we take from that huh, the the permissibility. We extract from that the permissibility of." assigning ambassadors to conduct certain things on behalf of others. Today, if you want, for example, to uh, get to marry someone in Pakistan, you go to the embassy and you make what we would call... Uh, tawkeed. tawkeed. or like a, a representation or like a power of attorney. Power. A power of attorney. You Give it to someone to marry someone on your behalf or something yeah. like that. So, An-Najashi was the representative of the Prophet <laughs> The negroes was the representative of the Prophet. And Khalid was the representative of Ummah Radiallahu Ta'ala anha. Also, women even sent for a for, a, for a mission. This is like this is something very, very interesting. Sending a woman that is Ummah bint al harith ibn Hisham. She was the wife of Ikrimah, Ikrimah son of Abu Jahad. And Ikrimah ran away from Mecca after the Prophet came back to Mecca. So the Prophet ﷺ sent, he went to, to, uh, to Yemen. The Prophet ﷺ sent his wife, his, his, the, I mean Ikrimah's wife, to bring him back to the Prophet. ﷺ. One of the things that relate to ambassadorship as well is what we would call the exchange of gifts and rewarding ambassadors and messengers. Because when people, that's completely different from people who are serving inside the country. Because people who are serving in public positions inside the country, they might get right. gifts and bribes. But these individuals uh, uh, they, they, in, in public positions uh, abroad uh, is, is a bit uh, different. The Prophet Wasallam, said to Amr Ibn Umayyad Dumari to Abu Sufyan with a, with a gift in, in Mecca. And that was at a certain time in order to kind of soften his heart. And that was at the time when the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam had a peace treaty with the people of Mecca. Mas'ud ibn Sa'd al-Juthami, he was a messenger of a man called Farwah ibn Amr al-Juthami, the representative of Qaysa from Oman. He came to the Prophet sallallahu accepting Islam and he gave the Prophet sallallahu a gift and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa gave the, the, that messenger uh, 500 dirhams. One of the things that I attach to, uh, to uh, at the amb- ambassadors and ambassadorship is what we would call translation department <laughs> uh, or a uh, turjuman. Uh, you know what? Have you, have you heard this word, dragoman? Yeah? No one has heard this word? It's an English word. It means someone who translates, dragoman. It comes from Arabic. It comes from Arabic. That, that's the reason why I actually mentioned it. Let's have a look in, uh, in the dictionary. Yeah. If, if, if you look it up, you will find that it, it actually. So, a, a, a dragoman is, is an individual normally who would. Uh yeah. Dragoman. Yes, it's here in the dictionary. Yes. Dragoman in the Near East, a professional interpreter. So, there were dragomans at that time of the Prophet sallallahu As we, we mentioned before, Zayd ibn Thabit, he, uh, he learned Hebrew in 17 days, but he also spoke Persian, Roman, Coptic and Abyssinian languages. And these were like the top languages of the world at the time. <coughs> um, number one, that we can we can take from that mm, that we can we can take from that uh, I have extracted from the story of Sayyidna Zaid number 1 is that the top secrets of a country should not be accessible to someone whose loyalty you should not hire someone whose loyalty is doubtful to work in such secretive or important places that's why when, when people work in s- specific positions, there have to be, in addition to to their qualifications, knowledge qualifications, educational qualifications, there are other things that contribute to that. Uh, today, when people work in certain places, they have to do a security check, isn't it? Security if you work in, in, in prison or you work in a specific places. And the, fec- the second thing that we, we, we can take is the, uh, the 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 importance of permission when the Prophet ﷺ gave him permission I mentioned that before he had some some ease in that uh, Sheikh Muhammad Nawawi al-Jawi, a uh, uh, Shafi'i scholar from Mecca, uh, he mentions uh, in the Tafsir of Inni Hafizun Alim, said Yusuf says Inni Hafizun Alim, I am Alim uh, means I'm able to uh, to deal with, with money, but Hafizun uh, Alim also he says, وَبِالْأَلْسُونَ I can speak different languages. I could speak different languages. So he had to speak different languages with delegations that came to Egypt at the time of the, the drought, seeking financial help from Sayyidina Yusuf. Imam uh, uh, Ibn Hajar mentions in Fath al that the Prophet knew all languages because he was sent to all people. <laughs> and that mentioned in Subh al that the Prophet ﷺ understood all languages when Salman al-Farisi <laughs> came, the Prophet ﷺ spoke to him in Persian. <laughs> uh, Ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhu narrates, هل تكلم رسول الله Has the Prophet ﷺ spoke Persian? Qala, na'am. He said, yes. دَخَلَ عَلَيْهِ سُلَيْمَان Sulaiman came to him فَقَالَ He's like, welcome. And he, uh, he he made him sit. But why did the Prophet ﷺ then ask Zayd and others to learn languages? Again, as we said, because it is, it is not suitable for a president even though he lo- knows the language to speak the language of his counterpart. So this is when, when it comes to translation department. There is also... Uh, uh, a way that was common in communication and representation, like, a, like the department of media. <laughs> in those days it was poetry. The Prophet wasallam. remember, the Prophet وسلم, came with the Qur'an, and the Qur'an criticizes poetry, right? The Qur'an criticizes poetry. whole surah in the Qur'an called Surah Al-Shu'ara, the Surah of Poets. But the Quran criticizes poetry and at the same time the Prophet ﷺ encouraged poetry. Hassan ibn Thabit, Ka'b ibn Malik, uh, they, and Abdullah ibn Rawaha, radiyallahu all of these individuals were very uh, eloquent poets. The Shu'ara of Quraysh were Abdullah ibn Zabari and Abu Sufyan and so on and so forth. The Prophet ﷺ encouraged poetry. So, how come? The reality is, uh, poetry was tamed by Islam, was redirected, just like today. If we dislike media, we don't dislike media because it is media. We dislike media because it makes of people's private lives its main content and its point of attraction. It attracts people through scandals. It attracts people through unethical themes. It attracts people through things that you wouldn't even accept for your children to look at. So, it is disliking the content that is being promoted in the media. Um, the Prophet and uh, this is very, very interesting. The Prophet ﷺ specified every poet for a job. Hassan ibn Thabit, radiyallahu and Ka'b ibn Malik, their main job was to criticize Quraysh uh, in terms of, like, wars and remind them of their defeats and stuff like that. Abdullah, radiallahu ta'ala an, Abdullah ibn Rawah, he used to discredit Quraysh and poetry by mentioning uh, how trivial they are in the matters of their ibadah. You know what I I mean by their ibadah? Like, uh, worshipping stones and things like these. And remember, and this is very, very interesting. Remember that the poetry of Hassan and Ka'b was about they were defeated in this battle. Uh, this day was a shameful day for them. This event was a shameful event for them. Abdullah ibn Rawaha, how come that you don't appreciate your minds and as human beings you go and worship these idols and things like that? Which one of these two categories would be much easier for them? Like they, would, they wouldn't mind. The second one. <laughs> because people care about their dignity So when you tell them You are defeated that, No, no, don't talk about that And then someone says to them mm, You prostrate to these idols And they say, it's okay So the Shaykh Abdul Hayl rahim Allah, Ta'ala says What Abdullah ibn Rawaha used to mention to them uh, Used to discredit them for It was easy Ahwan 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 from the word Hayyin it's easy for them it was easy for them to (laughs) just like he's he's describing our gods it's fine why? because and and this is this is a fa'idah that I I extracted that a disbeliever does not realize how ugly it is to be a disbeliever like you go to an atheist and you say how ugly it is for you to deny God well that's a source of pride for him it's not, a source, it's not something that he's ashamed of That's something he goes around But uh, that's, uh, it is like happy with that You can't discredit a person who adopts a certain madhab With his madhab, <laughs> Because it's a source of pride for him Like you go and you disagree with a Mu'tazilite for example And he say like you guys are a well, that's his source of, of pride. When you go to someone who is a servant, you guys like uh, that's his source of pride. He likes that. That's that's what makes him who he is, isn't it? Vegetarian. Yeah, vegetarians. Look, like, you <laughs> vegetarians don't eat meat. Yeah, we take pride in that. No, we don't <laughs> eat. Yeah. That's the point they will say. Or a teetotal, for example. This. Well, that that's something that they. It is the source of his pride. So Quraysh did not find it shameful to be called idol worshippers. But they found it shameful to be called defeated and blame. But when they became Muslims, this is also the observation of Sidi Abdel Hayy, he says, When they accepted Islam, they used to look back at the poetry of Abdullah ibn rawah and hate it most. Why? Because now it reminds them of how bad they were. <coughs> Poetry was so important and so valuable. Remember that poetry was a way of protecting the life of someone. Ka'b ibn Zuhair ta'ala who was running away when he came back to apologize to the Prophet sallallahu after How did he apologize? He wrote a poem. The famous poem Banat Su'ad The Prophet sallallahu alayhi Prophet passed by the, the captives of Hawazin and Hawazin was one of the big tribes that fought the Prophet wa sallam, after fath al-Makkah. They were literally Hawazin and Thaqif and Quraysh and Ghutfan. These tribes were like the heavyweights. Yeah. They were like heavyweights in in, in in the Arabian Peninsula. So He alayhi wa sallam, uh, captured Hawazin after after so much fight with them, and they they, 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 they he defeated them. and They had. A big, big uh, captives, big number of captives. He passing by them, and there was a man called Abu Jarwal, Zuhair ibn Surad al-Jashmi, one of them. So he praised the Prophet ﷺ, and he said, أُمنٌ عَلَيْنَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ فِي كَرَمٍ فَإِنَّكَ الْمَرْءُ نَرْجُوهُ O Messenger of Allah, be generous to us. Do us a favor. فَإِنَّكَ الْمَرْءُ نَرْجُوهُ You are the man, you are a person we look for and we wait for. لا تجعلنا كمن شالت نعامته واستبق منا like don't make us don't put us to shame واستبق منا like save us we are we are people of strength we can help you نأمل عفوا منك يلبسه البرية we were waiting for your pardon and for your forgiveness so the Prophet Sallallahu looked at them and he liked poetry. He liked that poetry. So he said, مَا كَانَ لِي وَلِبَنِي عَبْدِ المطلب فهو لكم. Like what I own from you, like whichever captives belong to me and Bani Abdul Muttalib, I set free. And the Sahaba said and we also set free whoever belongs to us. That's, that was a response to poetry. Uh, he Sallallahu also listened to, uh, appreciate, appreciated good poetry. He Sallallahu Asked uh, Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Abbas to recite to him the poetry of Umayyad ibn Abi Salt, who was a, a monotheist from before Islam. The Prophet ﷺ asked Abdullah ibn Abbas to recite to him. Also, the Prophet, وسلم, when uh, Hassan ibn Thabit wanted to criticize Quraysh at the time when they had uh, issues with the Prophet, وسلم, the Prophet said to him, How would you criticize them while I'm one of them? That means it will entail you criticizing me as well. He said, عن, I will extract you from them as we extract the hair from the dough. Meaning, I will criticize them but not you. But how would you do that? You have to know the lineages of people. You know, like you go into a tribe or to a big family, you need to know who is the cousin of who and who is... And then you... Like the, sub, the sub-tribes the sub and the sub-families. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa at that time... Um, Ali رضي الله تعالى Sayyidina Ali رضي الله تعالى عن was asked by others اهجو عنا القوم criticize Quraysh because Sayyidina Ali رضي الله تعالى عن was a great poet but the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم said لَيْسَ عِنْدَهُ مَا يُرَادُ فِي ذَلِكَ that which you want is not with him meaning he's not he's not the person for this job even though he was a great poet why? I extracted from that that he wanted to remove any embarrassment from Sayyidina Ali رضي الله عن. how can you ask someone to criticize his own family? How would, he make, how would he face people later on? Remember that Hassan ibn Thabit was, huh, was a Medinian. <laughs> so if he, if he meets Quraysh afterwards and is criticized them, he's Medinian, he doesn't care. But you ask Sayyidina Ali to criticize Quraysh and then in a few years time he goes back to Mecca and he, how would you meet your cousins if you criticise them today? <laughs> yeah, as, uh, so he, the Prophet said said, like, this is not his area. It doesn't mean that it's not his area, he's unable to to do it, but it, he wanted to save him. Salawatullahi salamu I will give you a break, inshallah, five minutes break, then we come back with <coughs> izhnillahi